I'm Sam Eichen, and this is the Butterfly Podcast. From your friends at Butterfly, Australia's national voice for body image issues and eating disorders. This episode's being released in October of 2020, which is also known as Mental Health Month. And with eating disorders being the complex mental health issues that they are, we're going to go back to the basics. Exactly what are eating disorders? You're about to find out that they're not what you think they are. You also probably know quite a few myths about them. We're going to set them straight as well. An eating disorder is an entrenched pattern of disordered eating and sort of thinking and feeling about body image and shape and weight and about yourself. You're told, I'm sorry to, to say that your daughter's got anorexia nervosa. Um, it has the highest mortality of any mental illness and, uh, you know, there's a 20% chance of mortality. That is like a huge thing to take on. It happened quickly, yeah. I lost a lot of weight very quickly and I got put on a, a feeding tube. I had friends and, and that type of thing and they, they just didn't get it. Like, it was so hard. Like, they, they didn't understand what was going on and, like, I didn't really want to tell them because I was embarrassed about it. I'm literally starving myself and the body will try to make up for that as much as it can. So then I'd find myself binging again and back into that cycle. People might eat things that aren't considered food, for example. Um, they might eat things like dirt or chalk, um, soap, for example. Everyone who experiences an eating disorder has a unique story to tell. Over a million Australians are currently experiencing one right now, and less than a quarter are getting treatment or support. And it's becoming increasingly clear that eating disorders are hugely underdiagnosed. And after months of lockdown and uncertainty, frontline workers are reporting that things are getting worse. We've had quite a significant surge um, in our calls um, and we've also had um, an extremely significant surge in our, uh, in our web chat contacts as well. So often, um, not exclusively, but often young people do tend to lean towards uh, contacting us online, so through our live chat service, and um, that has increased significantly um, and, and exponentially as well. It, it keeps going up um, and a lot of those coming from Victoria um, in particular. I should mention that as we record this, Victoria is still in a state of hard lockdown. If you're thinking about reaching out at the moment, we encourage you to do so. The details about how to do that will come up later in the show, including the web chat that we just mentioned. It's a vital tool. I am a um, psychologist. My work is working with people with eating disorders. That's Dr. Beth Shelton. She, like everyone who works in the eating disorders field at the moment, is extremely busy. We were very lucky to get her on the show. And I'm also the director of the National Eating Disorder Collaboration. So if we need anyone to explain exactly what eating disorders are, Beth is the person to do it. It causes a lot of mental suffering and a lot of dysfunction in life, especially around food and eating, but also in terms of social life, in terms of cognition, in terms of getting on with life and having the life that you want to have. Dr. Shelton has much more to say about this, but first, to the myths. Myth number one, eating disorders are a lifestyle choice or just plain vanity. This one is straight up BS, but for someone who has no personal experience or understanding, I can see why it would seem that way. The truth is, eating disorders are serious mental health conditions. They're often associated with serious medical complications, which can affect every major organ of the body. 
They're caused by genetic and personality vulnerabilities, interacting with social and environmental triggers, things like body image or body dissatisfaction. The recovery process can be long and challenging for everyone involved. To dismiss it as a lifestyle choice or some sort of vanity is not only wrong, it can be harmful. The eating disorder that people tend to have in their minds when they immediately think of an eating disorder is anorexia nervosa because it's the most commonly known eating disorder and it's because it's the most obvious in terms of a person's um, weight and shape and appearance. So in anorexia nervosa, the person has ideas and beliefs and feelings around weight and shape and the control of those things which really overtake them and they are kind of driven in a sense to reduce the food intake that they have. I was about 13 years old when, um, you know, you have these early high school relationships and I, I dated this girl and she broke up with me for no real apparent reason. For some reason, I thought it was because I didn't have a um, six-pack set of abs and that she was after someone that would, was more muscular or more fit. That was just what I, what I told myself. Before we go any further, I should probably introduce you to Rupert. I'm a 29-year-old male uh, living in Sydney, uh, Australia at the moment. And yeah, I work as a uh, town planner for a local council here. I suppose the logic in my head was I was doing a lot of sport at the time and particularly playing soccer. And um, I always thought, oh, maybe if I lost a bit of weight, it would help me run faster as well. Which, um, And I, I'd just like to make note that I wasn't, I wasn't overweight or anything at this stage either. I was just like yeah. a, a healthy, normal weight. Um, so, yeah, I suppose that kick-started kick everything. They sometimes are able to numb feelings in relation to that, um, that starvation kind of response, but it also tends to make people lose certain amount of cognitive function being at least to underweight and to sort of starvation response, which then kind of makes a person stuck in their cognitions and Sometimes it's very difficult to see the big picture because the brain kind of shuts down in a certain kind of way. It all happened really quickly. Like I started losing the weight really quickly. I, you know, to get the six pack abs that I was after, I started doing sit ups excessively. Like I kept playing soccer, but, you know, everyone was starting to realize, all the coaches were starting to realize. They started putting me on the, on the bench on the sideline and I was quite good at soccer at the stage but um, obviously this really affected my performance as well so yeah I started getting put yeah. on the bench I wasn't allowed to play you know there, I remember there was one time I, I, I played a played a full game and I fainted after the game because I didn't have enough obviously blood sugar my blood sugar levels were too low from just not eating enough food it also tends to lead to social isolation, so the person has um, difficulty with being um, flexible enough to eat with other people and to be with other people. I was 13, 14 years old and, like, I had friends and, and that type of thing, and they they just didn't get it. Like, it was so hard. Like, they, they didn't understand what was going on and, like, I didn't really want to tell them because I was embarrassed about it and people just didn't understand. At that stage, I think I was completely over the you know search for the six-pack abs and stuff like that like I was obviously very body conscious yeah. still 
but it was just okay. like I was just stuck in this um, in this cycle that I just couldn't couldn't break out of. I'm a mom of two daughters who've had eating disorders. We're still talking about anorexia nervosa here, and we're going to bring in Christine Nysmith. She's another person who's devoted her life to helping people with eating disorders after experiencing them through her own daughters. My daughter was in year 11, very happy, healthy, uh, bubbly, friendly girl, lots of friends, um, doing well at school. And um, it all started with the year 11 formal. Um, The group of girls decided that they all wanted to look nice in their formal dresses, so they were going to go on a healthy eating diet and do a bit of exercise. And, you know, as a mum, you think, okay, great, Um, that sounds fine. Um, So she was actually preparing salads to take to school for her lunch. You know, I was very proud of her taking that initiative. Um, But, you know, it soon turned sour. So you get this um, vicious cycle in a sense of restricting food and the effects of restricting food on the brain and the body and on the social life tending to reinforce that, if that makes sense. So the person is stuck in this pattern it's hard to get out of because of the distress that comes from um, changing that rigid pattern of eating. She'd lost, you know, a little bit of weight for the formal. I thought she looked a little bit thin, but she was okay. And she was with her first boyfriend at the time. Um, they had a little bit of a tiff and he made the casual remark, oh, I think we need a break. And that was enough to spiral this insidious illness um, out of control. And she just went from, um, you know, eating healthily to basically cutting out a whole food group a day and um, became very, very sick very, very quickly. So it was quite terrifying to uh, have a child that was just refusing point-blank to eat anything. So, yeah, the, yeah. the start of it was very frightening indeed. Um, no no previous history, no knowledge of an eating disorder or what anorexia was. And my goodness, it is a steep learning curve um, and a shock, just a shock to, to any parent. Now's a good time to take another break to destroy another myth. Myth number two, eating disorders are a cry for attention or a person going through a phase. Research shows that over 50% of 12 to 17-year-olds strongly agreed or agreed that a person with an eating disorder should snap out of it. There are more important things in life to worry about. And unfortunately, these types of misconceptions are not limited just to the general public. A person with an eating disorder may receive similar reactions from some health professionals. The truth is, people with eating disorders are not seeking attention. In fact, due to the nature of an eating disorder, the person may go to great lengths to hide, disguise or deny their behaviour. Or they may not recognise that there's anything wrong. It's not a phase, and it won't be resolved without treatment and support. Evidence shows that early diagnosis and intervention can greatly reduce the duration and severity of an eating disorder. So it's really important to seek professional help at the earliest possible time. Unfortunately, it's not something they'll just snap out of. If you're concerned about yourself or someone else, jump onto Butterfly's website to find out what to do next. I'll put out the details at the end of the episode. So after anorexia nervosa, the next most well-known eating disorder is bulimia nervosa. So what happens in bulimia nervosa is, again, the person has ideas, rigid ideas and overvalued ideas about how important weight and shape might be for them as a person and 
really strong desire to control weight and shape. So they do the same thing. So they tend to diet or restrict their intake. You know, I really used food for comfort as a child. Astrid Welling is a support worker for CentreCare. I work um, specifically in the area of eating disorders for the PACE team. I know you told me yesterday, what's, what does PACE stand for? Oh, sure. It's panic and anxiety, OCD, which is obsessive compulsive behaviour, and eating disorders. Astrid spends a lot of time helping other people find recovery from eating disorders, but she has her own story to tell. Um, I was quite an anxious child and food was my friend. So that that kind of implanted fairly early on and I think most of us can trace something back to, to childhood around it. Dietary restriction naturally creates an enormous pressure on the person to eat because we are survival. We're survival organisms, aren't we? And we want to survive. So when the body feels itself to be underfed, to be starving, it sends lots of signals up into the brain and into the, into the body itself to sort of eat, get the person to eat. So the person then breaks their restriction. Then I left home and very low skill set around coping um, and it kind of kicked off from there. So I found that I was binge eating to allay my anxiety, but then my body was now 17, 18 and it wasn't just falling off like it did at 13, 14. And because they have got a lot of physiological pressure built up and psychological pressure built up around rules and all of that kind of thing, when they eat, it's often possible for them to eat more than they wanted to. Or even if they don't, they they experience then um, a sense that they have broken the rules and enormous distress sometimes around that and fears that have to do with the need to rigidly control weight, shape and eating. So then the person might do an activity, what we'd call a compensatory activity, in order to kind of compensate for the fact that they've eaten. So there's only a certain number of ways that you can do that. You can do it by vomiting or you can do it by certain sort of substances or people think they can, although they don't work, Um, or you can do it by excessive exercise. And so I I tried, started to try dieting um, and I found that that gave me a level of control so I'd lose a lot of weight but then... I'm literally starving myself. Then I'd find myself binging again and back into that cycle. Feeling pretty bad about the eating and then doing the compensatory behaviour and then going around the cycle again. So I've done my exercise now. I sort of feel better. I'm back in control. I'll I'll restrict my intake again. But the cycle keeps repeating itself because it has sort of um, physiological and emotional and motivational kind of triggers that just keep happening. One thing to remember about eating disorders is that the psychology behind them is very similar, regardless of the diagnosis. It's not uncommon for someone to swing from anorexia to bulimia or other forms of the illness. So I really went from, for the next 30 years, I went from um, anorexia to bulimia to binge eating, orthorexia, which is, um, you know, that real obsession and compulsion around health and fitness. If you're not sure about orthorexia, we'll get to that shortly. There's a growing view in the world, actually, that eating disorders, forms of eating disorder, have more in common with each other than they have separations because it's often true that people might have one form of an eating disorder, such as bulimia nervosa or anorexia nervosa, um, but that actually changes over time. 
For Rupert, switching from one diagnosis to the other was a kind of coping mechanism. My parents started to notice this and they started to, you know, make me eat more. And obviously I loved loved playing soccer and being active, um, but they, they kind of put restrictions on that. Um, unless I was eating adequate food, then they tried to educate me that, you know, you can't do all this physical activity unless you're fueling yourself a bit better. Um, and I suppose that started the, um, the bulimia aspect as well, because my way of getting around the kind of control aspect that my parents were placing on me was to, yeah. to eat the food to satisfy them, but then later go to the bathroom. And So you're eating disorder sort of transformed for you from, from what sounded like uh, anorexia nervosa at the start to bulimia. Yeah, correct. Correct. Diagnoses are important in that they help the field and for people who have lived experience of an eating disorder be able to identify what kind of pattern of eating it is and what kind of pattern of difficulty the person has so that we can target treatments. But there's a lot that's in common underneath and underlying those eating disorders. We still have a few other diagnoses to get to yet, but first it's time to blow up another myth. Myth number three. Families, particularly parents, are to blame for eating disorders. This is a common historic misconception that family members can cause eating disorders through their interactions with the person who's at risk. Doctors even used to treat parents as a contributing factor rather than a support resource. The truth is that there's no evidence eating disorders can be caused by particular parenting styles. Family and friends, in fact, play a crucial role in the care, support and recovery of people with eating disorders. So the next diagnosis that we have to talk about is binge eating disorder, which is the one I've been diagnosed with. And as more data comes in, the more it seems that I'm definitely not on my own in this one. More people have binge eating disorder than, than certainly than have anorexia or bulimia. And um, interestingly, the binge eating disorder is um, close to equal between males and females. What happens in binge eating disorder is the person doesn't necessarily restrict their intake, although they are likely to have and do have most of the time some distorted and, and um, uh, upsetting ideas around self-worth, weight and shape and and needing to control those in order to feel like a good person. Binge eating disorder is more than just comfort eating. It's a compulsion to drastically overeat, and in my experience, there's nothing pleasurable about it. When I binge, I feel this horrible sense of shame, and I usually try and hide from the rest of the world. I feel like a drug addict who needs to take more and more bigger and bigger hits, desperate to get that high, but the high doesn't come, and I'm left in a puddle of shame trying to rationalise to myself what I've just done. So typically the person, the typical pattern would be the person would restrict a fair bit of food during the day and not eat very much and then eat a lot of food um, at night would be the typical pattern. But it doesn't have to work that way. In a binge, a person eats more than would be considered a kind of normal amount of food, a fair bit more than that, in a certain discrete period of time and experiences feeling really out of control in their eating. So it's a very specific kind of eating. And that recurs um, often in the person's life more than, say, three times a week. 
Astrid says she gets more calls from people with binge eating disorder than anything else by a long way. That lack of control causes you distress and, right. you know, affects the way you feel about yourself. Um, there's no judgment around the way people eat, how much you eat. I have no judgment around it at all. But if you're judging yourself on it and feeling less than because of it, then that's an yeah. issue. That's psychological distress. Binge eating is, is quite painful for most people who, who have it and they often feel pretty awful afterwards but the cycle sort of drags them in and they come around and do it again. So it's associated with really um, quite serious dysfunction and suffering for the person. It's much more serious than I think that anyone understood when we first started looking at this, um, this pattern of behaviour. When people start to realise that they have a problem, they're increasingly reaching out to the Butterfly National Helpline. One of the people they might get on the phone is Amelia Trinick. I'm a team leader on the National Butterfly Helpline for Eating Disorders um, and a clinician. Um, and I've been working at Butterfly for about or just over six years now. Amelia says there's definitely been a spike in calls since the pandemic struck. And we're starting to see more and more eating disorders that don't fit these traditional diagnoses. But before we go into them, let's deal with some more myths. Now we're getting towards the end of the episode, so we're going to deal with the last three nice and quick. Myth number four. You can tell by looking at someone that they have an eating disorder. The truth is, eating disorders come in all shapes and sizes. You can be considered a normal size or overweight and still have a diagnosis of an eating disorder. Myth number five, eating disorders are trivial or benign. In truth, they are not. Eating disorders are complex mental illnesses that require comprehensive and effective treatment from specialists. And myth number six, eating disorders are for life. The truth is, recovery is possible. Eating disorders are treatable at every age, stage and point in a person's life. The other major diagnosis that we need to mention is called Other Specified Feeding and Eating Disorders, or OSFED. People with OSFED meet quite a few of the symptoms of anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorders, but they don't meet all the checkpoints for a diagnosis under these disorders. Now, this doesn't mean that OSFED isn't as serious. Like all eating disorders, it's a serious mental illness, and similarly, it doesn't discriminate and accounts for around 30% of people who are looking for treatment. And after OSFED, we have a few less common eating disorders. That doesn't mean they're any less serious. One that Amelia from the Butterfly Helpline says she sees reasonably often is called ARFID. It's more commonly understood or sort of known as um, extremely picky eating. So somebody who experiences ARFID might show really highly selective eating habits um, or disturbed feeding patterns. Um, it's generally but not exclusively diagnosed in younger people. It's called ARFID, so Avoidant Restrictive Intake Disorder. ARFID is a little bit different in that the person doesn't necessarily or probably doesn't even have any sort of real concerns or cognitions around weight or shape or the need to control food in that sense. They may have had a traumatic kind of episode with food and swallowing, like a vomiting episode that's kind of created almost like a phobic relationship with food. So you might have heard of people, for example, who will only eat white food or people who will um, only eat sort of carrots and 
broccoli or people who will only eat um, junk food. So highly specific sort of preferences. And when that becomes a problem is when a person isn't able to meet their nutritional needs because they only they have such rigid sort of setups. We've also got pico, um, which is an eating disorder where people might eat things that aren't considered food. For example, um, they might eat things like dirt or chalk, um, soap, for example, um, and other things. It's essentially where someone um, might feel a compulsion or have a compulsion um, in order to ease distress by eating um, something texturally that they uh, might consider, uh, again, to sort of have that compulsion towards but isn't um, or doesn't contain a nutritional value. Um, uh, And so that, that can come up for people. And often, I mean, as well as other eating disorders, would often be presenting alongside um, a, a co-occurring, another co-occurring um, diagnosis um, or presentation as well. And lastly, disordered eating and orthorexia, they aren't technically eating disorders, but we should mention them because many clinicians believe they're warning signs and it's a good time to start taking action before it develops into an eating disorder. We really encourage people to get support for before it develops into um, something more more serious. Um, and that's general disordered eating. So just that disturbed um, eating pattern and that not even just eating pattern, but also thought pattern or thoughts and feelings about themselves or about food that might um, that might disrupt their day in a negative way. Um, as well as another that, that sort of floats around and it's important to mention, and that's orthorexia. So it's not currently recognised as an sort of official eating disorder, but there's this growing recognition that um, that it might, you know, become a distinct um, uh, sort of defined eating disorder, but it essentially involves that obsession with what some people might call clean food or healthy food. Um, there's a real moral uh, sort of standpoint on food, so good food and bad food, um, and becoming quite distressed if the food that that person is used to eating or feels um, feels morally good eating isn't available. For more information on any of the diagnoses that we've covered in this episode, go to butterfly.org.au. And looking ahead to the next episode, we'll be exploring the very difficult but also very possible prospect of recovery from eating disorders. I don't think there's enough recovery stories out there. You just hear the doom and the gloom and and it's really important for these parents who are in the middle of it to, to hear the positives because they need that incentive to keep going. First of all, you just got to want to get better. You've got to want to do it for whether it be for yourself or for the, the people you love. That's the benefit of the lived experience person, to be able to say there's hope because it's the hope that you lose the most of. Please do reach out for support. We've got um, just the most wonderful helpline team. Um, I cannot rave <laughs> highly enough about um, you know, on the other end of the line or other end of the web chat or, or, or email. Can you throw out some details for how we can get in contact? Sure, you can reach us on 1800 334673. Um, you can also email us at support at um, and our website. Um, to jump onto web chat there is just butterfly.org.au. If you're in Australia, that number to call again is 1-800-334673. That's 1-800-ED-HOPE. The Butterfly Podcast is an Icon Media production for Butterfly Foundation. It's written, produced, edited and hosted by me, Sam Icon, with the assistance of Camilla Beckett and Belinda Kerslake. The theme music is from Cody Martin, with additional music from Breakmaster Cylinder. Thanks to Dr. Beth Shelton, Christine Nysmith, Amelia Trinick, Astrid Welling, and Rupert Luxton. 